celebration of a people who made magic with a stick of butter, a bag of flour, and a whole lot of love. Here, framed by the kitchen wall, the humming refrigerator, the toasty stove, is the place where our mothers and fathers, our aunties, sometimes uncles, our grandmothers put their collective foot in it. In our last episode, I ask, what makes food black? Now, I have a different question. What makes food history? How do we tell our stories as a family, as a people through food we share during those moments we share together? The story of food in America brings the story of black people in the kitchen of the plantation house, our family's house, and even the White House. America was built on a fusion cuisine using indigenous crops European ingredients, and African hands. And that cuisine is called soul food. One of the best examples of the bakery blend is one part butter, one part flour, one part cheese and sour cream, and some brown sugar black. In the second of a series on soul food, we start at the ending in conversation with food scholar Adrian E. Miller, author of the James Beard Foundation award-winning book, Soul Food, The Surprising Story of American Cuisine, and the NAACP Image Award-nominated book, The President's Kitchen Cabinet, which traced the history of those who fed our presidents from George Washington to Barack Obama. And we end at the place where history starts for most black families, around the warmth of the kitchen, as I bring to life my mother's contribution to the Douglas Royster Family Reunion Recipe Book with my cousin Felicia on Zoom. Yeah, kind of similar to the old days, surrounded by family. Family reunion, got to have a family reunion. Turns out the essence of soul food is a pound of butter, a dozen years of research, and a gallon of love. Today, Author Adrian E. Miller shares his scholarship, and my sister cousin Felicia Ellis and I share our homemade family recipe book. I present my own version of soul food by the pound. Cake, that is. I'm Valerie Johnson, and this is Interludes. Interludes. A Pure Lighthouse production, brought to you by A1 Pestmasters. For all your exterminating and pest control needs, call A1 Pestmasters. And now, all the way live from the south side of Chicago, give it up for your host, Valerie Johnson. soul food in America is the story of the transatlantic slavery, the story of emancipation, the story of the great migration, and the story of us. We are fortunate to have such an inquisitive and insightful writer like Adrian E. Miller to guide us through the journey of what makes up a soul food dinner plate eaten by citizens like us and presidents who have led this nation. 
as he discovered through his research, many of the men who have led us were also fed by us, Africans and African-Americans in the White House kitchen. Here's Soul Food Scholar, Adrian E. Miller. Hi guys, I'm Valerie Johnson and welcome to Interludes. Uh, on today, I am honored to have the author of Soul Food, the surprising story of American cuisine, one plate at a time, and this was the 2014 James Beard Foundation Award winner. Welcome, Adrian Miller. How are you? I'm good. Good to be with you. Wonderful. And, and also, you call your, your self-proclaimed soul food scholar? Right. My tagline is dropping knowledge like hot biscuits. So I hope to I do that. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So let, let's see how the knowledge gets dropped like hot biscuits as we talk to you on today. Mm, soul food. Let's get right to it. Uh, what is it about soul food that captured your imagination and led you to want to write about it as a topic? Well, so, um, I mean, I'm an, I, I'm an accidental author. When people ask me, why did you, you know, what led you to write this book? The short answer is unemployment uh, because I was between jobs and uh, doing a, watching a lot of daytime television, and I'm not even gonna tell you what shows. And so in the depth <laughs> of my <laughs> depravity, I said, you know, I should read something. So I went to the <laughs> bookstore, and I found this book on the history of Southern food. It's called Southern Food at Home on the Road in History, written by a guy named John Edgerton. Okay. And it's a great book. I highly encourage it for everyone. And he, he wrote that the tribute to black, Amer black achievement in American cookery has yet to be written. So that's really what launched the journey. So, um, you know, as I started to think more about soul food, I was looking at all of these other cuisines getting, you know, celebrated and treated. And I was just like, why not our food? Exactly. And um, yeah. And, and to me, there are really two steady criticisms of soul food. One is that this is slave food. It's what white people didn't want. It's right. the mass leftovers. Why are you celebrating that? And the other one is that it needs a warning label, right? That if you eat this, on a regular basis, it's going to kill you. So my this book is really an, an, a celebration, but also an exploration of those two things. I wanted to sort out fact from fiction. Wow, well that's wonderful. And and unemployment has led me to a lot of different uh, careers and and stuff. But I'm interested to I'll talk to you afterwards to find out what soap operas you were watching. That'll be fun. Or <laughs> daytime television you were watching because I, I I have I had my favorites back then too. Um, what would you classify as a quintessential soul food dinner so uh it's a great question because that's how i organized my book so rather than having a plotting history i decided to create create a representative soul food meal and i wrote mm -hmm. a chapter about every part of the meal explaining what it is how it gets on the soul food plate what it means for the culture so i'm going to run through the meal and you can applaud you can say amen you know whatever um <laughs> <laughs> i'll probably do this wave <laughs> all right so entrees i wrote about fried chicken mm -hmm. fried fish and then chitlins. Mm -hmm. And now I had to, I couldn't escape writing a book about soul food out writing about chitlins. Okay. And yeah. For the side dishes, I wrote about greens, black eyed okay. peas, candy Ooh. jams, mm -hmm. mac and cheese. Mm -hmm. I wrote about cornbread. I wrote a book. I wrote a chapter about hot sauce. And then I wrote a chapter about red drink because I believe red Kool-Aid is the official soul food drink. <laughs> um, and you know, I, I I note in the book that there's a generational shift happening. There's a lot of youngins that like purple and blue. And I, as I wrote in my book, I do believe the children are our future. That we should teach them well and let them lead the way, but not on Kool Aid because they're messing it up. 
Exactly. Uh, and then um, for dessert, I couldn't settle on one, so I wrote about four. Pound cake, peach cobbler, banana pudding, and sweet potato pie. Excellent. And I'm a pound cake cooker myself, so I totally understand that that was yeah. passed down to me. Yep. <laughs> now, I have to say a lot of people, and part of the fun of it is as I went on my book tour and stuff, people were arguing with me about why didn't you include this or that. And so wow. this meal is just what would ha what, what meal are you most likely to get if you have a soul food restaurant anywhere in the world? Because right. what you get in the South is going to be more expansive than what you get outside the South. So um, okay. there's certain things I left off the plate, like okra. You know, um, you just don't. Right. Yeah, you don't see okra that much at a soul food joint when you get outside the South. Um, but now that's changing a little bit because now fried okra is everywhere. Um, okay. But back when I wrote the book, it was, okra was less common outside of the South. Wow, that's that's interesting, and I yeah, wow, I'm I'm totally fascinated by that because okra kind of speaks to our our ancestry. Um, are there and since you've talked about it's okra was known in the South and and not really outside of the South. Are there certain regions for variations and styles of food that's classified as soul food, like say in Denver versus Atlanta? Like, have you noticed a difference? Yeah. So, um, you know, one thing I argue in my book is that soul food is really the food that black migrants took out of the South mm -hmm. during the Great Migration and transplanted in other parts of the country. So, you know, it all depended on what you can get from back home. So a place like Chicago, the transplant was pretty direct and thorough because they could get a lot of the same food. So, you know, I, I mentioned okra earlier uh, it, and like I would get vegetable preparations in the south where a whole steamed okra was just laid on top like a condiment whether i asked for it or not and i only saw that the only other time i saw that was in restaurants in chicago so to me that was that was mississippi transplanted other than that the variations mm. were really based on different types of food so fish uh varied widely across the country the type of hot sauce that people used um but you know other than that it was pretty standard Okay. Yeah. Kind of some things were across the board and some things you could tell. Yeah. What region the type of cornbread. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. The type of cornbread, like what's the difference between water cornbread? And then I think there's another type of cornbread. Like I, I hear there's a difference. Yeah. So hot water cornbread, that's pretty close to what native Americans were actually cooking. Cause all, all corn dishes come ah. from Maine, which is native to the America. So indigenous people, that's where we all learned it from. Right. Uh, and so really that's just cornmeal, some, maybe some salt, maybe a few other spices, you know, varies from cook to cook. And then you get scalding hot water, pour mm. it into the cornmeal, and then that stiffens it, right? And you form patties, and then you fry it in a shallow grease. Uh, in time, some people would add flour, eggs, baking powder. So it's more like a corn pancake. Um, right. But yeah, uh, you've got that, you've got hoe cakes, which to me, hoe cakes are very similar to hot water cornbread. I, and a lot of people, there's this this idea that hoe cakes come from enslaved people cooking on the back of a hoe in the fields. Wow. But if you actually look at the terminology of the time, hoe was the term for a griddle. So it's really griddle cakes. Oh, um, so that's where that cakes. comes from. Yeah. All right. See, break it down. He's a scholar, ladies and gentlemen. He's breaking things down. What yeah. goes into research about the kitchens in the White House from Washington to Obama? So uh, that was a trickier. So uh, the lion's share of my research was basically from old newspapers. There are companies okay. that are digitizing newspapers. And so you can read newspapers from the 1600s and 1700s. 
And so you have to figure out, like, how was food discussed in that time? How did they talk about cooks? Because the term for a chef has changed over time. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's a veil of secrecy around the White House because the White House staff prides themselves on not spilling all the beans. Uh, but, mm. you know, over time, people have talked. And so it was a mixture of newspaper and magazine articles looking at cookbooks because every once in a while, a cookbook would say, this is a White House recipe. Um, and then uh, going to the presidential archives mm. and it's hit or miss in terms of what they have. Like, for instance, at the Jimmy Carter presidential library, you can they have the menu for every single day of his presidency. So when, whenever he's at the White House, you just pick the day. If he was at the White House, you can see the day what they had to eat. And a lot of times they're marginal notes from First Lady Rosalind Carter saying like, oh, Jimmy doesn't like peas or things like that. So that's a lot of fun. But then there are other presidential libraries that just, you know, they just didn't really care. Food was not something they thought had to be documented. And and the cook, it's hit or miss in the cooks. Like for instance, the Lyndon Johnson Library is pretty thorough about naming all of the cooks that worked during his administration, but other libraries just didn't even bother to mention them. Wow, did you know the races of the cooks of for any particular president? Was there any more um, predominantly black chefs or was it just basic or just, you know? Right, so here's the irony, and I hope this comes out the right way. I, I just don't know how else to say this. So mm -hmm. back when people were openly racist, they would mention the race of these cooks. You know, like now, nowadays, you know, people are discourage you from talking about the race of people. So exactly. Uh, yeah, so like 100 years ago, they would say the Negro cook or the colored cook. Mm -hmm. So you could you could get the race now. Whether they would say the person's whole name, that was a whole other story, right? Because African Americans were not valued, so why would you indicate that whole person's name? But uh, if you if through the sweep of history, if you're just to take the average White House kitchen worker, it's a black woman. Ah. Uh, it's really only in the Kennedy administration that the influence of black cooks starts to wane, because First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy fundamentally oriented um, White House cooking towards Europe. Because uh, before it was a split, like state dinners would be very European. They would hire a French chef right. or something like that. But for the cooking in the White House, they relied on domestic cooks and the, the food was mostly Southern. Um, and that's what they mm. relied on. Uh, and so when she started hiring classically trained cooks, uh, European cooks, then you know the African-Americans who had been on staff didn't have that expertise. So as they left or retired, uh, white chefs started replacing them. So there, there's still um, there's still three uh, African-Americans on staff now, uh, but we, we don't dominate the kitchen like we used to. The last time an African-American ran the White House kitchen was back in Lyndon Johnson's day. And that was a temporary assignment because they were in between hiring two white European chefs. Wow, see, that's interesting. I did not know that. See, that's why you're the scholar. Yeah. Um, that, woman did, was, that woman was named uh, Zephyr Wright. She was the private cook for Lyndon Johnson. And so um, she acted as executive chef until they, uh, as a, a temporary basis. Wow. It, um, did any preferred foods from our past presidents surprise you? Like you just mentioned about President Carter, it was on the margin of the notes, didn't like peas. Was there any other presidents or people that said, oh, I prefer this or I prefer that? Yeah, so the, some stories that come to mind is Thomas Jefferson had a mac and cheese Jones <laughs> and he served a mac and cheese in the White House, February uh, 6th, 1802. 
Okay. I know this because somebody uh, who was a serious diarist wrote about going to the White House that night and having that that dish. And the interesting connection about that dish is that it was likely from the recipe of James Hemings, who was the one of the older brothers of Sally Hemings, the enslaved woman uh, mm. with whom um, Jefferson had several children. So interesting connection there. Um, turn of the ninth, or sorry, turn of the twentieth century. There's a lot of possum and taters eaten. So possum and sweet potatoes. So Theodore Roosevelt, uh, William Taft, uh, and Woodrow Wilson all were grubbing on possum and taters. And then another interesting thing is FDR loved pig's feet. Uh, wow. In fact, yeah, he loved pig's feet so much that he actually served them to Winston Churchill in the White House. He served them uh, sweet and sour pig's feet. So those are some examples that come to mind. Wow, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have thought that any president would have preferred pig's feet because I didn't like it, but that's just me. <laughs> yeah, he got hooked what? on them from a black cook uh, when he he would go to Warm Springs, Georgia, and a black cook named Daisy Bonner was loaned to him by a wealthy white family that ingratiated wow. themselves, and so uh, she got him hooked on it. She would broil them, and mm -hmm. then split them and butter them. So it wasn't kind of the stewed pre uh, presentation that or steam that we're mostly used to. Wow. That's fascinating. What should Americans understand about the full history of soul food in this country? Well, soul food is one of the earliest fusion cuisines in our country. It blends the culinary ingredients, techniques, and traditions of West Africa, mm -hmm. Western Europe, and the Americas. And that all comes together in the American South. And a lot of this food is foundational to our nation's food. If you think about the most iconic regional cuisine, it's Southern and mm -hmm. soul food overlaps heavily with Southern, but I, you know, I argue it's a different thing, but although there's some that say they're the same, I think they're mm -hmm. a little bit different, but right. um, I don't think we fully appreciate what African-American cooks have done to shape our food tastes. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, the way that Latinos dominate uh, commercial kitchens today, that was African-Americans a hundred years ago. Uh, now, the difference was is that African-Americans had a freer hand in shaping a, 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 the food served in a restaurant. Today, everything's so corporate and so controlled. I don't think these Latino cooks can really put their own spin on things. You know, they got to follow that formula. That wasn't the case 100 years ago. And uh, whether it was barbecue, uh, Southern cooking or whatever, restaurants would actually advertise the fact that they had a black cook signaling to diners, you're going to get the real thing if you come eat at my place. And some of the most celebrated restaurants um, of the 1800s had black cooks. You know, they're anonymous to us, unfortunately, but um, mm -hmm. you know, people noticed that there were black women in those um, positions. And in fact, after emancipation, New York restaurants would actually recruit black women from the South to come up North and cook for them so that they could advertise having authentic Southern food. Uh, and when it came to barbecue, uh, African-Americans were put on stagecoaches and trains all over the country to bring a taste of authentic Southern barbecue. Yeah, because that was a big seller. Yep. Yeah, in restaurants. Yeah, it wasn't something you could get in your locale. So, um, you know, fortunately, uh, I think, and the, the thing to understand is, unlike other uh, parts of African-American history, mm -hmm. it's, you can't really say that these cooks have never been celebrated because they were in their time because there are newspaper articles written about these people. That's how I got this information. Um, the celebration wasn't as full as it could be. But, um, you know, I think now we have more and more writers digging into the past and we're bringing these stories back. 
And that's what's main. That's what's mainly important that we don't forget about the history of soul food and how we shaped American cuisine and our place in that. It's very important. Very important. I feel I feel well educated from just talking to you about this. The movie that went through my mind was The Butler, and I was thinking, I don't know how close that was to the truth or not, but you saw that movie, right? Yeah, so that that movie was pretty good. So it was a composite, so they put together a whole bunch of Butler stories. That's what I thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, The one thing that they, you know, know, can't do everything in a movie, I guess, but I really wish (laughs) they would have shown the teamwork between the Butlers and the White House Kitchen. Right. They were all working together to do it. You know, there was too much, you know, I, I just didn't think they showed the kitchen aspect enough. Um, but yeah, no, that was a good flick. And wow. And how long did it take you to, to compose, to do all the research to gather for your book? And how many recipes is in there? Because I, I saw some recipes when I was looking through. So the soul food book technically was 12 years. So I think in terms of full immersion, that was four years. And then uh, it's been basically two years for my uh, my other books, because now I know how to write a book. So mm-hmm. one of my things is, you know, I'm so jealous of somebody like Isabel Wilkerson, who, you know, oh. got enough resources to spend 10 years writing a book. I was like, man, do you know what kind of book I could bang out if I had that kind of... <laughs> so... Um, I'm in New York. There, I always felt like there were fake soul food restaurants that were. I lived in Brooklyn, um, and there was a place called Gloria's. Oh yeah. And uh, what are your thoughts on the soul food restaurants in and around the New York City area and, and about Gloria's? Okay, I gotta tell you, I wasn't that impressed. I, I wasn't either. <laughs> I, I think the in terms of soul food scenes, I would go actually Bay Area, mm-hmm. then Chicago. Then Atlanta, I New York is fourth at best. Wow. Let me tell you the two places that I really did like, though. Mm-hmm. I really like there's a place called the Boulevard, the Boulevard in Harlem, BLVD. I've heard there's of that. A place yeah. called the Seasoned Vegan, um, yeah. which was bomb food. I mean, seriously, mm. I would eat there frequently if I was in New York. Wow, because a lot of a lot of my listeners are in are from New York because that's what I just left there probably about a year and a year and some change. So they'll be listening and checking this out. So we talked to the founders of Eat Okra on last week, and that was wonderful. And I saw that you guys did a campaign together. How was how was it working with with them? Yeah, that was great. I love them. I think they're the most thorough, uh, you know, kind of black restaurant app, like phone app, at least out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I created a list of places to come in Denver. Uh, I know people don't think there are any black people in Denver, but there are. And we've got yeah. some restaurants here. So if you roll through, I, I created like my top, uh, you know, eight places. Adrian, if people wanted to pick up your book, um, Soul Food, The Surprising Story of American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time, where would they go? Well, you can go to soulfoodscholar.com. In the navigation mm-hmm. bar, I have about my books. Uh, you can order there and, and you can get an autograph copy and I'm, I'm fine signing it any way you want to. So if you want me to sign it saying I, I couldn't have done this without you, happy to do it that way. Uh, it is available on, on all on- online um, platforms. So Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or you could go to your local independent bookseller. They need the help. And if they don't have it, just ask them to order the book. Uh, so those are all available. Um, the, uh, there's not, there isn't uh, an audio version 
but I recorded it for the Talking Library of Colorado. So there, there's not an audio version of that book, uh, but there is one of my president's books. So. Wonderful, wonderful. And I, I'm hoping to have Adrian back to talk about his a book that's coming out called Black Smoke. And we're excited to talk to you again about that. So come on back and see us when the release of that comes. Okay. Sure, thank you so much. Wonderful. I'm Valerie Johnson, and this is Interludes. Cake, 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 cake. 500 million, I got a pound cake. This is front and that's upside down cake. Get them a red nose, they clown cakes. At the tender age of eight, I learned to bake. Started with biscuits, buttermilk biscuits from scratch, in what felt like a much bigger kitchen, especially in the summertime when school was out. You gotta stop, my mother would joke. You'll be as big as a house. I followed instructions. I didn't make things with a pinch or a smidge. I measured my steps. I used Tupperware to cook. Selling Tupperware was my mom's side hustle. And I'm still using Tupperware measuring cups to this day. My mother's kitchen feels much smaller without her. Today, I have my family and her recipes to keep me company. Since 1977, my life has been strengthened by a sense of family. The Douglas Royster family came together every other year, sometimes in different cities like Omaha or Los Angeles or Forest City, Arkansas or Washington, D.C. with the goal of being together. My mom sold Tupperware but her sister, my Aunt Loisteen Ellis, sells 7-Up Pound Cakes to this very day. If you're listening to me in Omaha, you already know. This week, I was joined by her daughter, my sister cousin, Felicia Ellis, as I returned to baking in my mother's kitchen as my eternally hungry executive producer, Michael Womble, watched. On the table, I proudly held my copy of the Douglas Royster Family Reunion Recipe Book. It holds approximately 20 recipes from family members from across the country. Dishes and desserts first made with family, or maybe recipes gathered along the way. As I made a very special sour cream pound cake, I talked to my cousin and my friend. Here are some scenes of making soul food in my soul kitchen. cousin Felicia how are you? I am awesome how are you today cousin? I'm good guess where I am where am I at? You are in the kitchen and I hope you're in the kitchen throwing down. Oh yes I am I'm getting ready to make a uh, sour cream pound cake. Mm. Yeah that's what's up. That's what's that up. sounds delicious I wish I could be there to enjoy a slice. I will not be enjoying the sour cream pound cake by myself. I will be I will be sharing it with uh, Mr. Womble. And you're about uh, to meet you're about to meet the producer of Pot of, of Interludes, Mr. Michael Womble. Hello, how are you? Hi, I'm well. How are you? I am great. Nice to All meet right. you. All right, good to meet you too. Okay, and good and good to watch Valerie cook. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wish I was in the kitchen with her so I can enjoy the cake once it's done. Yes. Yes. 
guess because this is a, this is a family affair, isn't it? It definitely is. Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, she was telling me about the um about the reunions and then the cookbook and and then the and then a seven up cake. Yeah. Which she is not making. She is uh, not to step on that hustle. She right. Ste stepped away from the seven up cake, making the pound cake instead. Okay. Yes. Okay. All yes. right. So, so if you were there in the kitchen, what would you be doing? How, how would you all be working together? Whew, well, let me tell you this. I would look personally be look step back, take a step back, and watch my cousin do her thing. <laughs> so my my thing when it comes to the Seven Up pound cake or just the pound cake in general is um eating it. <laughs> eating it, okay. That's what I enjoy. All right, <laughs> okay. All <laughs> no, right. You know what? I would be her sous chef, so I would hand her the ingredients as she's preparing, so that I'm not too much in the way. Okay. All so right, my duty. And by and by that we are talking about we're talking about a pound of the big four, right? We're talking yeah. about a pound, a pound of butter, <laughs> a pound of flour, pound of sugar, a pound of flour. Yes, so then look and eggs, of course. And then yeah. you have your lemon extract. And then if she was making a Seven Up pound cake, we would have the Seven Up as well. Okay. Fact, All right. In fact, um, uh, Felicia, the, I helped her mother with the hustle of making the seven of pound cakes. I baked, no, I baked two of the pound cakes and mixed one all together under her guidance because her mother is like gangster when it comes to making seven up cakes. Like she reaches out to her church family, her, her formal work crew, everybody. She sells anywhere from what about 10 to 20 cakes a season. Thanks. Mm -hmm. I actually helped her during Thanksgiving and she sold a total of, I believe, 12 pound cakes and she's charging $20 a pop and they are famous around the city of Omaha. So everyone loves my famous seven up pound cakes. And what did I end up doing when I was struggling like in between gigs in, in uh, New York? I, I made this pound cake for somebody's birthday, and then I started getting my hustle on and was making pound cakes for my family, uh, for my church family out there in Brooklyn. I was uh, getting my hustle on like Aunt Lois, Felicia. Yes. <laughs> and that's one thing I'll say. My mom makes cakes for funerals, family reunions. She has a church member that drives from Omaha to Chicago every year, and she orders three seven up pound cakes to take to her family reunion. That's how bomb.com they are. Wow. Okay. <laughs> All right. So the thing, you know, we, we're talking about uh, soul food and kind of families and history. And I was kind of surprised to learn this. So what we're watching, watching Valerie do here we have been doing in this country for more than a hundred years. And this idea of the pound cake actually appeared in the second known cookbook published by an African-American in America. Did you know that? Cause I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Felicia, mm -hmm. what you? I knew about it and um, I can't think of her name, but I think it was published back in the 1800s, like 1881. And Abby she Fisher. actually lived in, yep, Amy Fisher, yeah. Yeah, yeah Abby, in, uh, Fisher. Abby Fisher. Abby yeah. Fisher, Abby Fisher. Absolutely, yes. yes. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. As, as she went on to pickle. Yes. <laughs> so an- another thing that, uh, of course, if you are in an African-American kitchen at some point, you will see the mason jars or the other jars repurposed to pickle. So this is this is all our our uh, heritage here. This is history, and that we have been able to continue this mm-hmm. whole idea. Um, Valerie, uh, earlier uh, this week, interview uh, an author, uh, Adrian Miller, and one of the things that he talked about was uh, fusion. That we, as a people in America. We have done the thing that, you know, people pay hundreds of dollars for in meals. We created the first fusion foods in America because we took what the Europeans were doing in Northern Europe and we blended it in with our traditions that we carried over on the ships, you know, and mixed those with some of the things coming up indigenous from mm-hmm. from Latin and South America. And we mixed all those together to create true fusion food. So Abby, so Abby Fisher was doing that. That was the second, the second cookbook. There had been before that another African-American woman who had published a cookbook previously. And who was that? And who was that? That was Melinda Russell. Melinda Russell, she published the first one as a free black woman from Tennessee. Mm. Tennessee. Yes. Tennessee. Nice. Go, ahead, Tennessee. Go, go, go ahead and say that the lyrics like <laughs> Tennessee. Oh yeah. Tennessee. That's our that's our history. Yes. That's, that's, that's our history. So so Felicia, tell tell us how uh tell us a little bit about while while Valerie is cooking about this this uh family this family reunion recipe book. Uh, how did how did that come about? So we decided as a family that we wanted to put a recipe of collections, a recipe collection together so that we can all share our masterpiece of recipes with one another. And we thought it would just be a good way to, to showcase our history over time because we do have many many recipes that have passed down from generation to generation and just to keep it going we decided why not put out this amazing recipe book to share so that way you know we always have it in the family and we can continue to share with the younger generation so that's what we decided to do but i i did learn that Baking with soft drinks with seven up pound cakes, it became really popular in the South in the 1950s. And so some experts, they speculated that seven up was used to like as an innovative way to substitute carbonation for a leavening agent. And I was like, wow, like who would have thought, you know, to do something like that? I didn't learn that. And like I said, my mother's famous seven up pound cake. It's like by all family members, friends, we come together at the kitchen table and it's just, it's a fellowship of laughter, debates and conversations. And the cake is, it's moist, it's decadent, it's fluffy, it's amazing. So it's its one of those cakes that's been in a family for, I'm, I'm gonna say it's, it's been passed down and for generations and it will continue to be passed down and, and be a part of our family history. When we were talking about putting some of these uh, thoughts together, 
and I'm going to try to get to this without getting emotional, but um, my mom taught me when I was real young um, how, to, how to bake. And my mother sold Tupperware. So Tupperware um, was something that she sold and um, I guess she would do demonstrations. So we would always, we always had stuff around the house to cook with, like pots, pans, cooking, measuring cups, all this stuff. So um, I know that if we wanted to come together as a family, you'd cook because that brings people together. And um, I know with uh, Felicia's mom, I was the last time I was there for Christmas or Thanksgiving was back in 2019. And my aunt and I were having a moment and she was remembering my mom. And she was like, yeah, I, she got emotional. She's like, I missed having somebody to argue with. Cause you know, it's, it's weird how food can bring you together and then I'm sitting at the I'm sitting at the I'm sitting at the table, kind of reminiscing of when I used to spend time with my mom in the kitchen, because dysfunction, which is your family and whatever, I my parents separated and divorced, and my mom and I bonded uh, when I was eight or nine years old and learned how to cook and soul food, especially when it comes to pound cake. It just it's like the sweetness of it. It's you prepare the meal. And the icing on the cake or the, the beautiful bonding thing was the cake. And you have to always have some kind of vanilla bean. What kind of what kind of flavor ice cream would we need with that vanilla bean and what else? Homemade vanilla, home, homemade vanilla ice cream. <laughs> yes. <laughs> homemade. I mean like homemade churned. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's my that's my cousin Steven. And that was passed to him through my aunt Juanita. Yep. No, I definitely now you bring you making me, you know, catch some feelings and memories here of sitting outside in the in the summer uh with my grandfather and uh have watching him uh with the ice cream maker machine making that homemade ice cream and then telling me uh boy go get some strawberries and I grab the strawberries from our garden and and uh clean them and get them ready to make homemade strawberry ice cream to go along with the things that, you know, that my grandmother was making in the kitchen. I, I wonder, you know, as we talk about history, you, you've got this book, this book of at least over 20 recipes. And, and I'll ask, I'll ask the question, I'll push it a little bit here. Sadly, I would say that many families don't gather like that anymore. Not the way that, that the two of you gathered with your mothers and your uh, aunts. So how do we how do we keep that? I mean, you got these recipes. The recipes will live on in this book, but who's who's gonna make them, and who's gonna share that with their children? You know, so so often we're playing our you know games, or we own our phone, or we're going through the drive-through, or we're doing all of these other things. Always on the move, always on the move. But but how do we keep that time where we're together and we have that what they used to call fellowship, the fellowship around the food? I'm asking both of you. How, what ways do you think that we can do to keep that as part of our uh, Black history and take that into our Black future? Okay, I was, yeah. So I know my niece, and she's 19, she loves to cook. 
And so I feel like just instilling it into the younger generation and allowing them to be in the kitchen with you and and showing them like my mother showed me and like my my mother showed Valerie how to do it because this is something that like I said I want to continue to do and I know my niece my niece has been in the kitchen and made a seven up pound cake and some other famous recipes that belong to our family so engagement with our younger generation is very important. And I feel if we're doing that and we're keeping them involved, then that's how we continue to carry on the tradition. And then of course, there's the, you know, having a family reunion. Like uh, our family tries to meet every, every two years. And um, uh, in uh, uh, the last place that we met was 2019, and that was supposed to be there. It was it was in D.C. My mom was was a big stickler for keeping the family together. She you know fought for that, and so she wanted the young people there. Um, she wanted everybody else there. Our our, our people that were more mature, um, sharing the stories, talking about you know how you know it was to cook how it was to share crop, how it was to pick cotton. Um, there's a lot of rich history in that. And I, I went to the African-American Museum uh, in DC for work and I was so excited. I wanted to take my mom there. And in 2019, from her sick bed, I gathered our, our slideshow pictures together and she approved it but she really wanted to be there. So we just have to always put that, that pride back in our, our kids, our, our family members to say, hey, we don't wanna lose the connection. Best way to do it, unite every, every, often, as often as possible. And then when you unite, you cook. Felicia, as I told Valerie in uh, my mom's kitchen on the, on the wall is, uh, is a framed recipe. It was my, my grandmother's recipe for uh, brownies, and you know I've had. So it's been it was been nice, you know, being in the city. So I've I've had the opportunity to taste them, have it, you know, and it's so cool because all she does is kind of just take it right off the wall and set it down on the kitchen table, and follow follow that blueprint. Uh, that that blueprint, that foundation, that that is, you know, that that was laid there, that allows us to build and and to go forward in the future. All right. So, you have any more <laughs> any more questions for me and my cousin, Mister Mister Womble? I I think we're good. I think we're real good. Yeah, yeah. Only thing left to do is the eating. <laughs> a slice can you send a slice to houston texas please i think what will happen is i will end up making uh, making another cake and sending it i will send you a loaf cake a loaf cake that will travel travel lights and be and be beautiful pack light yeah the nice light whatever and we'll make sure that gets over to you and drika or you you don't have to tell drika but you know you <laughs> But yeah, this this cake will be going over to um, to, the, to my producer because he wants to he wants to taste the the fruit of my labor. Is that correct, M Michael? Enjoy. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. I'm jealous. I'm jealous, Michael. I am so jealous. <laughs>
Next time on Interludes, a very special surprise you won't want to miss. Interludes, original concept by Valerie Johnson, written by Michael Womble, produced by Valerie Johnson and Michael Womble, original intro and outro music Produced by Kendall Nesbitt. Interludes, a pure lighthouse production. Brought to you by A1 Pest Masters. For all your exterminating and pest control needs, call A1 Pest Masters at area code 773-365-9962 or visit their website at a1pestmasters.com. When you book your appointment with A1 Pest Masters, Tell them that you heard it first on the podcast called Interludes. Catch our Interludes Extra of this episode and more on our new YouTube channel called Interludes. Interludes.